0: Nick Sawyer and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. It's been a truly unique and challenging year with all of us having to adapt to living and working in the midst of a global pandemic. In this episode, we'll look back at the exceptional events of 2020 and explore what 2021 has in store. In the derivatives markets, as elsewhere, the response to coronavirus has dominated events this year. As the virus took hold in March, central banks and regulators acted quickly to inject liquidity into financial markets, improve access to US dollars, and delay upcoming regulatory deadlines to enable financial institutions to focus on risk management and supporting the economy. Within just a few days, offices around the world were closed, workforces were sent home, and business continuity plans swung into action. Nine months on, financial markets and infrastructures have proved resilient, But the economic consequences have been severe. For many of us, remote working continues to be the norm. Against this backdrop, firms have had to prepare for the end of LIBOR after 2021. Brexit negotiations have continued between the EU and UK. And a divisive US election was won by Democrat challenger Joe Biden. After such an eventful year, what will 2021 bring? What issues would dominate the derivatives markets? To talk through these issues, I'm here with Scott O'Malley is the CEO. So,
1: Scott, what have firms got to think about in 2021? In short, a lot. We're obviously uh, still in the throes of a pandemic, although vaccines are now on the horizon. In fact, they've been issued here in the UK. On top of that, this will be a crunch year for the LIBOR transition, with many LIBOR settings likely to cease on December 31st of 2021. Firms will also need to adapt to a post-Brexit world and the impact that that will have on the cross-border derivatives activity. The new Biden administration will be in office soon, so there will likely be a big change in the U.S. approach to climate change and other issues. Plus, we'll have some big regulatory deadlines, not least is the phase five of the initial margin requirements for non-cleared derivatives. So just a few things on our plate coming up.
0: There's clearly a lot to discuss, so let's get straight to it. Our guests for this episode are Darcy Bradbury, managing director at DE Shaw and Co. and an Isda board member, and we have Eric Litvak, managing director, group director of public affairs at Société Generale, and chairman of the Isda board of directors. So, Scott, over to you.
1: Eric and Darcy, welcome to the Swap. It's great to have you both on. I'd like to start with a high-level question. How would you like to sum up the year 2020? And what did you find most challenging or what surprised you the most? Darcy? let's start with you.
2: Most challenging was seeing the human suffering and that even the most wealthy countries have not been very effective at mitigating this terrible pandemic. But then focusing more narrowly on financial markets, it was surprising, but also gratifying that the plans and the, the tools that firms and regulators had in place actually worked pretty well. The uh, crises that we've endured, 9-11, the global financial crisis, even hurricanes, have taught us how to respond for better and for worse to uh, adapt to crises. We were all able to pivot to work from home and speaking to colleagues across the industry. I think people were surprised. It worked better than any of us could have expected. And the actions that the Fed and other regulators took with congressional support worked pretty quickly and well to stabilize markets.
1: Eric, what do you think about the challenges and and any surprises you may have seen in the market?
3: Seriously, how do you sum up 2020 when it's been the year of playing apocalypse bingo? I mean, just about the only thing that didn't happen in 2020 was an alien invasion. And for all I know, it may have actually happened, but we missed it because we were all too busy dealing with toilet paper hoarding. Okay. What I will remember beside the acute early phase of the COVID crisis and the health worries about friends and families and neighbors is the way in which 2020 swept aside so many preconceived ideas about how and where you work, but how much you can get done without traveling all over the place. And it's going to accelerate many of those trends and social and business changes. And fundamentally, it's provoked a reevaluation about who and What is important in your life? It's been, in Dickens' memorable words, the best of times and the worst of times.
1: Indeed. I'm certainly looking forward to getting back into the flow, back into the office. I know it's going to change probably for the better and and maybe get a little work-life balance again going forward, but certainly uh, seeing my colleagues, seeing my friends, is going to be important to getting back to that. Now, Darcy, you touched on the response to the market Crisis. There was a period of extreme volatility during COVID, right when the pandemic was kind of, you know, emerged uh, as a global event. The financial system did hold up pretty well, as you noted, and key markets and infrastructures continued to function, and financial institutions did remain resilient. From both the sell side and the buy side perspective, what do you think really worked well here, and what didn't work so well, and maybe why? Hey, Eric, you want to start with that from a sell side perspective?
3: Sure. So if we cast our minds back to the first quarter, it was a period marked by unprecedented levels of uncertainty, which prompted extraordinary levels of risk aversion and an almost desperate dash for cash from actors across the entire spectrum. So that made it exceedingly difficult to price risk assets in that environment, and that led to severe dislocations. Price discovery continued to function, but it reflected very distressed conditions. Post-trade infrastructure held up well, but under severe strain. If you'll recall, at the time, there were some calls from, from various quarters to shut down markets, but this was resisted by market venues and supervisory authorities, and, and wisely, I think, as the consequence of shutting down markets would have been to make things, I think, a lot worse. Still, it was touch and go there for a while, and it took the prompt and massive action of leading central banks to send the necessary stabilizing signals by relieving the potentially toxic liquidity squeeze with just floods of liquidity.
1: Interesting. Darcy, what, what about from the buy-side perspective? What were you saying?
2: Well, I agree with Eric that one of the most important things the government did was allow the markets to stay open and find their new levels. It was pretty volatile, and there were a lot of calls to stop trading. But the policymakers understood that the markets needed to process this very significant economic change. And there were rules in place, like circuit breakers uh, and others that helped the market function during this difficult period. Secondly, the the regulators actually provided sort of practical relief for regulated entities, which is not a small thing. They delayed by year the new initial margin rules on non-cleared swaps and went through all of the myriad of filings that we make and gave people extra time, which particularly with the work-from-home transition helped a lot. So, We can't underestimate the impact of all that little stuff that had to get taken care of. Uh, ISDA was extremely helpful in working with the regulators to sort through those things, and we certainly appreciated that. As Eric mentioned, functioning in the Treasury market came under significant pressure as um, market participants of all sorts looked to sell securities to generate liquidity. The corporate bond market as well froze up for a short period of time. And the regulators had to step in, particularly, I would say, the the, uh, central banks and uh, did a number of things that worked well. And I think that we learned that some of the reforms from Dodd-Frank have been effective and others might need a little more tinkering. And I think in particular, the banks have a lot more capital. And fundamentally, that allowed them to withstand these difficult times and come out stronger and better.
1: Maybe you want to elaborate, you know, what needs to work better in the future? What did we learn about this crisis and how we prepare for the next crisis? Should banks have spent down those buffers, Darcy? Any, any recommendations for the next crisis?
2: I think it's very hard to ask banks to do things that are against their risk management plans. And so you did need the government to step in and providing liquidity to the financial system, as Eric mentioned, was just critical. And there were so many facilities, the FX swap lines got dollar funding to banks in a number of countries, the Fed purchased treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, corporate bonds. All of that was extremely important to restore balance and, and smooth functioning I mean, the Treasury market functioning is critical. It's a benchmark status around the world, and it financed the large fiscal response of the U.S. government. And similarly, the corporate bond and municipal bond markets are important. If those markets hadn't successfully reopened, the economic fallout would have been even more severe as those corporations And governments at the state and local level might have had to cut back even more severely on employment and economic activity. So getting these markets going again was just vital to the real economy.
1: That's a great point. Darcy's kind of touched on the the central bank response and, and how regulators did act quickly in March to pump liquidity into the system and provide that necessary regulatory relief on the deadlines, such as IM, such as the Basel rules for a delay of a year. So we can expect them, you know, that, that work in 2021. Eric, what were the most important measures to bring stability to the financial system, in your opinion?
3: Well, the central banks had retained the lessons of previous crises. So they, they backstopped liquidity, as Darcy said, in high-quality assets in major currencies, making it available to a wide range of actors directly or indirectly. And the Fed in particular was very quick to act, providing dollar liquidity lines around the world and massively expanding its balance sheet and the range of assets purchased. The ECB and others quickly followed suit, and the turning point really was that rapid mobilization to provide the assurance of massive support to the financial system, which, together with what came a little bit later, the announcement of public sector support measures to the economy, gave markets the necessary confidence to stabilize and start normalizing in what continues to be a very anxious economic and human environment.
1: So Let's look to the future. Next year, we'll bring an equal number of big changes, hopefully not on the scale of a pandemic, but we will have uh, the inauguration of President-elect Biden. Brexit is uh, is looming as we are into the final stages of those negotiations, and we have the implementation of phase five of the initial margin requirements for non-clear derivatives. It will also be a big year for LIBOR transition. Let's take each of those in turn, starting with LIBOR. How would you characterize the process of the transition from LIBOR to alternative risk-free rates for both the sell-side and buy-side? Eric, you want to start us off?
3: It's been a long and complicated road. Uh, Where are we now? What was it Churchill said after El Alamein? This is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it's perhaps the end of the beginning. Uh, We're somewhere about there. There is still a massive lift ahead of us. We still need to see more liquidity build out in the new, L, the new RFRs and perhaps in their term structures. But the elements of the roadmap are now clearly in front of us. ISDA has provided a fallback mechanism into its definitions and a protocol to incorporate it into legacy derivatives transactions. IBA has announced consultations on cessation and the SA and the Fed have further clarified their expectations with respect to the timetable. So there's still plenty of heavy lifting, but we're now at the point where we can see what the outlines of the end game look like.
1: I think it's a great way of putting it. We do have that framework, and that's that's pretty important. And obviously, recent announcements by the IBA and the FCA have framed that up quite nicely. Darcy, what's the buy side concerned about in terms of LIBOR transition?
2: Well, I think Eric's right. I think the market liquidity for these new products is still developing, and that will be very important. But if I can just focus narrowly on the swaps market and um, some of the things that ISDA has been involved in, it's good. The LIBOR transition is now largely a job for our technology and operations team. You know, thanks to the ISDA protocol, the transition for the industry will be relatively easy for the vast majority of standard swaps. Of course, there's always some exceptions. And we've been working really hard to identify those more complex positions early on so we can give them the extra time and attention they'll need. But I'm much more optimistic. I agree with Eric.
1: So in January 25th of 2021, we will see the new ISDA fallbacks come into effect. This is an important development. And maybe you can give me a a board perspective around the decision to take on the role of developing this consultation, working with the Department of Justice to make sure that it met the antitrust reviews and developed a solution that the the entire market or most of the market could you know, willingly adhere to. Give us some insight as to the board perspective on that and, and how important Isda's role was in delivering a neutralized solution for the industry to create efficiency and, and to cut costs. Eric, as chairman, I'll let you start off with this one.
3: Sure. So this is an issue that the board took on, or that it took on at the board's direction about two and a half, three years ago, and it's been probably our number one priority during that time because the single biggest part of global eyeball exposure is in the derivatives market. So we really owned that problem, and we needed to to move forward on that. And moving to appropriate fallbacks is a critical step of the process. Many existing contracts extend far beyond the likely end date for LIBOR, and in most cases, the pre-existing contractual terms for non-publication were completely inadequate for the scenario of cessation. These ISDA fallbacks provide an industry-agreed mechanism for moving to an accepted replacement rate based on a risk-free rate plus a spread to account for the credit spread components of the bank-offered rate, and these ISDA fallback protocol allows that contractual mechanism to be seamlessly incorporated into the legacy contracts for all protocol participants, saving them the enormous operational burden of renegotiating and repapering their existing transactions. So this has been the board's focus in delivering a key component of this the structural solution for transitioning off LIBOR. That's where we needed to bring the industry communally, and it was important to get to that point in a way that showed broad transparency and consultation and avoided any anti-competition pitfalls.
1: Darcy, what about you? uh, as As a board member, how did you see this playing out?
2: Well, as a board member, I want to say I'm very proud of the work that the ISTA team has accomplished. It was not easy. And having a transparent, orderly, and broadly consultative process was just critical to making the LIBOR transition for swaps a success. Bringing together all the different types of market participants, enabling them to develop a consensus on a fair and reasonable way to convert LIBOR contracts took a lot of hard work and a lot of caring. And the team really stepped up. So I hope you're proud of them, Scott.
1: Extraordinarily. I think since Eric's throwing out famous quotes, I think it was Mike Tyson that said, everybody has a plan right until about the time they get punched in the mouth. We had to evolve and change our strategy. From regulatory feedback to, to market feedback, it was a it was a bit of an iterative process, and um, the team kept with it, stayed on it, and um, delivered a good solution. So, we're still working to make sure that everybody adheres to the protocol, and and we uh, affect a smooth transition because we are getting to the point where LIBOR's days are numbered for sure. In amongst LIBOR, we also have been spending a lot of time helping the market transition to the initial margin rules and. During the coronavirus crisis, they did give us a one-year deferral of the phase five and phase six initial margin implementation deadlines. Phase five will now take effect on September of 2021, bringing into scope an estimated 314 entities representing over 3,600 counterparty relationships. That's far in excess the numbers that have come into scope in previous years. So, getting ready for this, making sure everybody has their documentation in place, having their custodian documents in place, and being able to use a initial margin calculation tool. Hopefully, the ISDA-SIM is a is a global and effective, transparent uh, methodology they can use. And they will take advantage of this to implement this in a cost-effective way. Maybe go to start with Eric. How big a deal is this in terms of bringing on so many entities? And, and what does the industry need to do to prepare for this for the September Go Live date?
3: So technically, it's the, it's the same roadmap as for previous phases of the rollout, but obviously with a very significantly higher number of counterparties and who typically have a lot less operational capacity to manage that process. And that means there's going to be longer lead times, and you need to ensure that steps are taken well in advance in order to ensure readiness. ISDA published a preparation fact sheet, which is available on its website and which takes you through the, the step-by-step preparation, but basically that's going through identifying your end scope counterparties as early as possible, making early disclosures to counterparties on that, exchanging information on, on compliance, identifying special cases for exceptions, establishing those custodial relationships you mentioned, preparing for compliance, and that means test, test, and test again, negotiating and executing documentation, and that's something where ISDA has put out technical solutions to, to facilitate that, and finally, finalize preparations and make sure that everything's ready on the day because the the deadlines is uh, is coming up quickly.
1: Yeah, uh, Darcy, how big are those operational challenges that Eric referenced?
2: Well, the hedge fund industry, as a subset of the larger buy side, is pretty familiar with this because we've all been posting margin for a long time. You know, in most cases, for twenty years. And so we have models, we understand how posting works, those need to be adapted and changed. But I think the problem with phase five and then phase six just a year later, which is even larger, is that in general, these are very different kinds of firms than the banks who were the primary participants in the early phases. And a number of issues have arisen that need clarification and Hopefully, modification from the regulators. If you step back and think about it, asset managers or insurers and pension funds, they just operate differently than banks and they have different regulatory needs. They have different processes they use. And so it's not a surprise that rules developed for banks don't fit perfectly. I serve on the CFTC's Global Markets Advisory Committee. And this past spring, the GMAC recommended a set of changes to the CFTC and to other regulators that it believes would make it easier for firms to comply without kind of needless costs and other issues for investors and other customers. And I hope they'll look at those carefully and see if they can make some modifications. It will certainly make it easier and simpler for firms to comply. And also, we think you know, we being the GMAC think that it will improve the overall operations between banks and their customers if we can adapt these rules a little bit for uh, the different needs and the different legal structures that asset managers use.
1: Let's turn to Brexit. Negotiations between the EU and the UK are still underway uh, over the terms and the possible trade agreement. So it's difficult to predict how this will end up at this point. Eric, what do you think are the major concerns for derivatives industry?
3: So the negotiations between the EU and the UK cover a very narrow scope of activities, actually, and the financial services are not actually part of that scope. That doesn't mean we're indifferent to the outcome of the negotiations because reaching an agreement will set the stage for greater confidence between the EU and the UK in the future. But also because not reaching a trade agreement would be a significant problem for our customers and the real economy. But really, the bilateral negotiations – have little direct bearing on the future of cross-border financial services, which will be determined by the equivalence framework and by the ability to service clients from a local entity when the equivalence framework doesn't allow for the provision of cross-border financial services. Most major actors in the sector have been planning for this outcome for some time. The EU has provided time-limited equivalence to ensure the continuity of cross-border access to central clearing, which was a significant concern for the financial industry because of financial stability concerns. Though looking further out, there will still be uncertainty about what the end game is going to be on clearing. The EU has not, as of early December, provided equivalence to UK trading venues. So there are still concerns with respect to fragmentation of market liquidity and client coverage. And the counterintuitive outcome of this for derivatives is that it could force transactions out of Europe and towards US trading venues. So this is something that we're watching very carefully as we, as we come to the end game of the transition period.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, a lot of uh, important decisions still need to be made, and we're, of course, at the 11th hour. But we'll continue to highlight these in both uh, in capitals in the UK, and Brussels, to make sure people understand the consequences of these. Now, one capital that we're going to be focused on in January is, is the U.S. capital, and we're going to see the inauguration of President-elect Biden, and climate change is likely to be a big focus of that administration. Uh, Darcy, what do you think the financial industry should be doing or is doing to prepare for a major focus on climate change and the Biden administration more generally?
2: We see a lot of interest in ESG issues from investors, although to make an obvious point, E, S, and G are all pretty different on environmentally focused investing. I mean, my firm, we've been involved for many, many years in our private equity business, investing in wind and solar power. We think it's a great thing to invest in, uh, kind of double bottom line. And just fun fact, we manage solar power facilities currently that are about as large in area as the size of the island of Manhattan. So these are serious, you know, these changes are coming with or without a lot of government encouragement. One thing that is more difficult right now is more broadly on environmentally focused investing, asset managers are getting kind of conflicting messages from the US and the EU regulators, and that's going to make it more difficult to navigate the space, forcing us maybe to have really different investment products in different jurisdictions and a lot of compliance burden rather than really focusing on what investors uh, might want. So we would like people to come together. There are some asset management groups that are working on proposals. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves.
1: Yeah, still very early days. We don't know exactly how they will prioritize the, the reforms and, and, and what the big issues will be in terms of their attack. Eric, Darcy mentioned the, the European reforms on climate are, are well underway. From your perspective in Paris, how do you see this relationship working out maybe?
3: Yeah, this has been an enormously important area of activity for the European financial sector for several years now, because financing the transition of the economy to a more sustainable long-term path is an enormous undertaking. It's going to require trillions of euros of investment over the coming years. And alongside the client interest that Darcy's mentioned, at the same time, this has been a major driver of regulatory activity with new requirements for sustainability disclosure to customers, for reporting of activities in compliance with the EU taxonomy, and for incorporating climate risks into a risk framework. In that context, it's very welcome to have the, the U.S. rejoin climate initiatives. That will be helpful for aligning the direction of travel overall. But as Darcy said, it's incredibly important given the magnitude of the undertaking to avoid overlapping and competing regulatory frameworks. And it would be very unfortunate if one result of the, the return of the U.S. into the efforts for climate transition were to be conflicting regulatory and compliance requirements that would tie up efforts at financing the transition in conflicting red tape.
1: That's a great point. Um, By many estimates, it's uh, over $100 trillion in investment to get to the the Paris Accord goals. And that's got to go through the financial services industry. They have to be part of that conversation. They have to provide the necessary resources, the financing, the hedging in order to support that transition. And, it, and you're absolutely right. It will be a long-term initiative, and we should therefore have some clear rules as to how the, those investments can be made so they can be made with certainty and, and uh, clarity. So that's that's very, very important going forward. Let me pull back a little bit more, and and, and maybe, Darcy, what are the other priorities U.S. regulatory agencies may begin with um, outside of the climate scope? In the in the Biden administration, what can we look to for this new, new group of people coming in?
2: Well, the um, old adage is that people are policy. So since we don't know most of their regulatory picks yet, it's a little early to say, certainly from things I've been reading, it seems there's going to be a clear focus on consumer protection. And I think you'll see that at, across a number of agencies. And then I think we can't ignore what we were talking about at the beginning of this, which was the market events in the spring. And that has caused a lot of current regulators and, and future regulators like Janet Yellen to re-examine Dodd-Frank, wonder if if maybe they need to adjust it, uh, address it, and that certain issues were perhaps not fully addressed in those reforms that we see you know, in those market events in the spring of 2020. So I think both of those kind of systemic risk issues and then consumer issues are likely to take up a lot of the focus.
1: Yeah, obviously they have a health crisis to manage and an economic crisis um, for many small businesses, medium-sized businesses, even large businesses that have seen their business severely impacted as a result of the pandemic. Eric, any thoughts on your perspective and and maybe maybe a cross-border outlook on this?
3: If we position ourselves in relation to where we were post-Dodd-Frank, where cross-border was a real sticking point, I think we've made a lot of progress since then. It's still complex to get to agreements between different jurisdictions on equivalence or substitute compliance. Uh, but we made progress on that. I would hope to see some of the progress made, notably at the US agencies, preserved in that respect because it um I don't think there's been that much of a rollback of the key elements of of Dodd Frank, certainly not of, of the derivatives portion. Over the last four years, what there has been has been an ongoing assessment to see what works and what needs uh, fixing. And that, I think, is a healthy and continuing motion. I would expect that there is going to be some sort of pushback. But uh, as Dorothy said, I don't see financial reform being top of the list of the incoming administration. Obviously, it also depends on on the uncertain control of Congress. If you see a, a split Congress, which seems likely still at that stage, then that's going to put a bit of a break on some of the agenda, and it's going to necessitate some sort of prioritization. So um, I would expect the new administration to choose those priorities carefully and try and build bipartisan consensus, if that's still possible. And to the extent that there will be changes in financial service regulation, it's going to come, as Arce said, at the regulatory agency level, and it really depends on, on the appointments.
1: I'd like to finish up by focusing on another critical topic for the derivatives industry, and that's diversity. Darcy, maybe you could give us your perspective and how might you rate the current efforts in diversifying the financial services industry and what more could be done on this front?
2: Our industry, the derivatives industry, does not look like America. And I believe collectively we're missing out on talent if we don't change our approach. I hope the events of 2020 have opened more people's eyes to the damaging impact on individuals, but also the corrosive impact on our whole society that these gross inequities create. From conversations with colleagues at other firms, I think many firms are taking a hard look at their hiring and retention policies to see how we can source talent more inclusively and give a lot more talented people an opportunity to prosper from and contribute to our industry. And ISDA can really play a role. Scott, you and I have been talking about this, just like we're a clearinghouse for ideas about how to change LIBOR contracts. We can be a clearinghouse for firms to share best practices and also collectively encourage persons of color and women to consider careers in finance that they may not even be aware of.
3: Exactly right. Eric, what do you think? As Darcy said, we're, we're still a long way from the target. What I am proud of is that uh, at Isda we have high levels of diversity within the staff and that's a, a real reflection of of what the broader society looks like it's been a priority of the board the board itself has set itself targets for diversity and inclusion necessarily the board is to some degree the reflection of the broader industry so it's a it's a difficult slog but we are making significant progress and we have ambitious targets and then looking further out, I think we have a responsibility of outreach and we discussed the issue of, of financial education in order to bring younger and more excluded people into financial education and, and, and help them work up the ladder because, because this is a long-term project. You don't just solve it by, uh, by putting quotas. Making progress on quotas is, is a positive sign and it helps to change thinking but you need to do root and branch change.
1: Completely agree. Um, as a father of three daughters, I kind of wake up thinking about this and making sure that they've got a, a fair and equal shot at any job that they want to do. So I'm fully committed, and I know the board is, to to helping on this front for not only gender diversity, but all diversity. Now, I'd like to end the podcast with a question for my guests about how you got into this business. I rarely think that anybody kind of sets their career designs on joining the ISDA board or maybe even getting in the derivatives business at all. But how did you each find your way into this position and this role? I'm fascinated, and I'm sure our listeners would as well. Darcy, you want to start?
2: Well, like most people, I didn't really know anything about finance when I was growing up, but I had always um, excelled in mathematics and public speaking And I followed politics pretty closely. Uh, There was a lot of things going on when I was growing up. And I went to business school and I really got recruited into Wall Street and have always loved the diverse skills that you can use in a career in finance. You can really need to do a lot of rigorous quantitative and legal analysis, but there's also a lot of people skills involved in finance negotiating, project management, um, nurturing young people as they grow into the field. And finance tends to attract really smart people. So then I I had the opportunity to serve in government, first in New York City as the deputy controller and then at the U.S. Treasury. And I got a whole nother graduate degree in how government works and, and how people approach these important policy decisions. About 20 years ago, I moved into the hedge fund industry and And today, my dream job at D.E. Shaw, it really allows me to combine a lot of these interests in public policy, in rigorous analysis, people skills, and I still get to work with really smart, nice people. So it's been good for me.
3: Eric, what about you? Well, I had a lot of dream jobs going up, but uh, by the time I came into the job market, there weren't too many openings for astronauts or explorers. And I guess I wasn't really cut out to be a fireman. Like many people, I guess I kind of got into finance by accident, but it was a really interesting time in the mid-80s in London when a lot of creative things were happening in finance and one thing led to another. I've been fortunate enough to be with the same firm for over 30 years. I've done lots of different jobs in that time and I have never been bored. And for the past 14 years, ISDA has been a big part of that adventure, so thank you.
1: Indeed. Well, thank you both for joining me on The Swap today. It's a fascinating conversation. A look back to COVID and the crisis we went through. Never a dull moment over the past year. And certainly 2021 is going to be equally as exciting, I think, hopefully without a pandemic and hopefully without a crisis. But it will be a busy year nonetheless. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Scott, I think we could have
0: spent a whole episode on every single one of those issues. (laughs) In fact, we probably will as we go through 2021. We heard about the industry priorities from Darcy and Eric, but to what extent do ISDA's priorities for 2021 align with that?
1: I think they align very well. LIBOR, initial margin, Brexit, ESG, those are all very important issues and something that we have on our agenda for 2021. Let's not forget that there are issues that were not addressed on this podcast on U.S. capital rules and Basel rules in general that will be important in 2021. We'll come to those. And future podcasts. ISDA will also focus uh, intensely on collateral optimization and helping the industry deliver on a digital objectives. ISDA is particularly well positioned to help on that digital transformation and, and will uh, certainly address that on future podcasts as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you talked about it
1: on the podcast
0: that next year is going to be incredibly busy, but what is it that you personally are looking forward to the most?
1: Well, I want to see the end of a successful, smooth transition off of the IBORs to the new risk-free rates, making sure that the, the industry has the tools, whether they're fallbacks or new trading, to deal with the transition from IBORs to the risk-free rates. I think that is really, really important. I want to make sure that, the, um, as Eric said, the initial margin rules. We're dealing with uh, many new participants that have to change their process or for the first time post-initial margin over the next two years. There's just so many entities in scope that it really requires an all-hands-on-deck amount of effort to make sure that the legal documents are there, the operations are there, the margin calculation is there. We have all the tools, we have all the services we can provide for them, and now it's just making sure that people are aware and execute. Absolutely. Well, we'd
0: better draw this one to a close. We'll be back early in 2021 to discuss climate change and sustainability, diversity in derivatives markets, Brexit, technology, and much, much more. Until then, we'd like to wish you a safe, relaxing and happy holiday season. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website www.bizda.org and our social media channels. See you next time.